6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 1 through 4. Now, here we could get into an easy digression about the law and uh, grace and between works and faith and so forth. Wherever we have the law, we have death. Numbers 15, verses 32 through 36 is an example. A guy collects some sticks on the Sabbath day and he's put to death. God commands that under Moses. You break, he was teaching them that you break the law, the answer comes crisply. The law speaks of death, the law speaks of failure, James 2.10 and lots of other verses that we've talked about. Okay. Works trips leads to the same chambers of horrors. Galatians chapter 5 details the results of works. Verses 5, uh, 19 through 21. And again, in the interest of time, we won't digress with all of these things. God's grace is the antithesis of that. Rather than digress too much on that, let's take the second word. Mercy, we've talked about. Peace, we, know, we talk a lot about peace. How do we have peace? Romans 5, 1. We have peace with God through whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, exactly. There is no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 57 tells us. The whole ideal is to worry about nothing, pray about everything, and give thanks for anything. And that's Philippians 4, 6, crudely summarized. Worry about nothing, pray about everything, and give thanks for anything. Authority for that is Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Do you know what a worry is a sin? I worry a lot. I'm a big sinner. I got a lot of anxiety. It's all unbelief. My wife and I pray a lot about that. I'm worrying less and less because he's just taking over more and more, and I wish I'd learned that a long time ago. They don't pay me by the hour. They pay me by the altar. And... Uh, but he sees us through. And one, what's, what's interesting, he sees us through never early, always at the last minute, because he's got to get us to the point where we finally give up and realize it's all in his hands. And when we do that, he comes through and fixes things. And you'd wonder, why don't we ever learn and just stop worrying? And, and we pray about everything. And then whatever happens, we give thanks and so forth. So that's what it's all about. Philippians 4, 6. Okay. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now love shows up in the first three verses of this epistle. So I assume it's important. It's our badge of identity. John 13 tells us that that's how men are to recognize us as Christians, that we love one another. It's also interesting that it's the lack of love that goes from Philadelphia to Laodicea in the seven churches. Those of you that are students of the seven letters, seven churches, and understand that that's a chronology of church history, understand that Philadelphia, brotherly love, gives rise to, what's the next one? Anyway, when Laodicea comes down, we've got problems. Okay. Something else that's worth studying is Ephesians of the seven letters, seven churches. The, the church at Ephesus was commended that they were very rigorous and straightforward on their doctrine. However, where do they lose? Their first love. Very good. Right. 
and we study the, the, what happened to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul, uh, John, both, both warned them what was coming. They obviously didn't hear because their lampstand was removed. How many of you have visited the church at Ephesus? Um, okay. Incidentally, these elements here also show up in verses 20 and 21. So the structure of the epistle will be preserved, but we'll take that on when we get there. But that's interesting. Okay, so we got mercy, peace, and love. Mercy is upward, peace is inward, and love is outward. So there's something very structurally fundamental going on here. In the interest of getting at least another verse or two, we'll keep moving. We could spend more time on this, but with, a, with an experienced, sophisticated group like yourselves, I'm covering uh, very, very familiar ground, so we'll move on. We get to verse 3, and we discover a strange thing. First question is, is, to whom is the epistle written? It's very important when you read these epistles to try to understand who is the audience and why was it written, that sort of thing. This, this is being written to beloved believers. This is not written to unbelievers. This is not an evangelical piece. This epistle will have very little meaning to you unless you're born again and, and abide in Jesus Christ. If you're not in that position, this epistle is going to be strange and boring and unrelated and not mean much. Have very little meaning to those who are not born into the family of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things, right, and so forth. Okay, and obviously the, the, uh, the word here is comes from the verb agapeo, which means to be totally given over to. Now, the, the structure is a little hard to unravel. He says, the Jude says, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you, and he goes on. What the language in the English doesn't get across is what he's really trying to say here. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, that's what he started to do. What he's really saying is I sat down with all straightforwardness to write you a letter about our common salvation. In other words, gee, we're believers, and I was about to write you a I infer that it's probably a letter like Paul used to write. He'd be away on a trip and he'd write his churches to encourage them and pray for them and, you know, just write about our comments, sometimes include some theological tidbits, but basically one of just encouragement. When I was going to, I see a Jew saying, I, uh, Beloved, when I, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, and it was that salvation that's common to you and I. That's what he started to do. It was needful for me. That language in the English doesn't carry the intensity of the Greek. There was a divine compulsion. Something changed Jude's mind as he started to write, and he was forced to write what he wrote. The word in the Greek means to compress or to put pressure on. The word is used in Acts. Let me show you how strong a word in the Greek it is. Turn to Acts 17.3. Paul is preaching here. He says, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. That word must needs is the same compulsion. How urgent was it for Christ to suffer and die and be born, raised again? Pretty urgent. The word in the Greek is pretty intense. That's the same word used here. Another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Paul is talking about his calling to preach the gospel. Paul says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. 
the drive, the compulsion, the pressure for Paul to preach the gospel, something he couldn't do anything else. If you read his letter, you know, that's, that's what he was driven to do. That, kind, that was the word, you see, that necessity is laid upon me. It's, it's, that's the King James, English. What Jude is saying is, when I, getting back to Jude here, when I give all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, I was divinely forced, pressured, to write to you and exhort you, and then he goes on. This whole letter is one of exhortation. Okay? Now, I'm going to suggest, obviously, that the use of words is very precise. And my authority that is 2 Peter 1.21. Should, should we hit that? If you haven't marked it, let's turn to 2 Peter. Knowing this first, that the prophecy of the Scriptures is, no prophecies of any private interpretation, verse 21. For the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And as you know from my own, from the background of these other studies, my own prejudices and the other things that, that I really believe that every word, every number, every place name in the original is there by engineering of the Holy Spirit, has relevance. If there is such a thing as a New Testament equivalent to the Kabbalah of the Old, then that's, that's at least the leaning that I have. So I really believe that these words are not accidental. They're very, very important. That's the only reason I try to, I'm, I'm hitting that hard. In any case, Jude started to write, nice little letter of encouragement, but was compelled to shift gears. And he says, to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which is once delivered unto the saints. And that phrase is going to be the theme that the whole letter deals with. First, the word exhort. Exhort in the Greek is a verb. Do you know what the noun is? Paraclete. Okay, the noun of that same word, the noun form is the word we use paraclete, which you all recognize as the comforter, the one that's called alongside to help. The verb of that is the word that's translated exhort. Okay? Now, exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. That's the key to this whole epistle. That's the challenge that you and I are being given by the Holy Spirit tonight and in this letter. Now, this word contend for the faith, that Greek word means to agonize upon, to contend strenuously in defense of. How are you and I doing that? I appreciate the crowd here tonight. I know that time is just as urgent in your life as it is mine, so you don't give your evening casually. So coming to these Bible studies is a non-trivial commitment on behalf of your Lord. That's neat. But it's one thing for us to sit comfortably. It's easy for me to comfortably go in my library and collect some notes to amaze and confound you on a Monday night. That's one thing. It's quite another for you to whether you're listening to a tape or on the radio or sitting here to, you know, knock off for a couple hours and take some notes and sort of feel good about it. That's neat. I'm not knocking that. But is that contending for the faith? See, what the Holy Spirit asks us to do is to contend for the faith. The word contend there is an active military word. It doesn't say be contentious. That's a different issue. Now, how can you faithfully follow this exhortation? Well, let me give you some ideas of what I'm getting at. You have to draw a sword and go find a hill to conquer. That's, that's the easy part. Let me give you some examples. Do you strengthen the hand of the faithful pastors you know? 
here in this congregation, we're uniquely blessed in the country. Anything you do to strengthen his hand, and I don't mean whether it's an offering or other kinds of support or personal support, that's contending for the faith. Supporting those that uh, are faithful. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, strengthen the things, etc., which we mean. The other thing you can do, the obvious thing you do, is an unflinching witness. You got an opportunity to witness, but you witness not just by guts and strength, but by preparation. The very fact you're here tonight is preparing you for a witness. And as you find issues that the Holy Spirit leads you to dig into, dig into some books, some background, being equipped to give reason to every man that asketh you of the hope that is within you, but with all meekness and fear. Something else you can do, and that's withhold support from those who are off track, who compromise or deny the whole counsel of God. There are a lot of ministries around that should be shut down. The Lord would love to shut them down, but there's people that get in the way. You need to be discriminating. You need to understand when you support something, what are the doctrines that are central to that? And are they ones that are biblically supported? Do you speak out against the preaching of another gospel? Proverbs 19.27, Galatians, lots of things about that. It's interesting if we, you might turn with me to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4. Did you know that Nehemiah had something to say to you tonight? Okay, yeah, the first question is, where is Nehemiah? <laughs> the way you find out is go in front of the book, find the table of contents quickly. <laughs> and that's why you need Pharisees tab, Pharisee tabs in your Bible. You know? I didn't have to go to Nehemiah, but the bookstore asked me to, see. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, Nehemiah, and I want, let's see, uh, chapter 4. four and we're talking here about building the wall. Remember after the regathering, after Babylon, they're coming back, they're rebuilding the wall. But verses 17 and 18 are kind of interesting. And I'm, I'm going to infer that that's the way we should live. It says, And they who built the wall and, and who bore burdens, burdened themselves, every one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand did what? Held a weapon. They were building this wall under conditions of adversity. So they had a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. Verse 18, For the builders, every one had a sword girded by his side, and so builded. And he who sounded the trumpet was by me, and so forth. I'm going to suggest to you that's the job you and I have. There's no work that we can do. And I don't care whether you're trading international securities or doing mergers and acquisitions or engineering high-technology stuff or something more prosaic. I'm just drawing upon my own horizon at the moment. Whatever you're doing, I'm going to suggest to you that there's appropriate to have a sword girded by your side. What sword am I talking about? The Word of God, right. If uh, General David Jones, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is a believer and can have a sword by his side, he's General of the Air Force. I don't know many General of the Air Force who have a sword girded on them, but he does. And so it's kind of interesting. So anyway, the, the point is, you have a weapon along with whatever other tools God has put in your hands to fight the battle with. Okay, um, that's the first exhortation, is to contend earnestly for what? The gospel, salvation, that's not the word he uses. Faith. And boy, here we could have an exam with 20 questions on it, and we'd be lucky to answer two right. I thought I knew what the faith was until I started digging into this. The word faith is a more inclusive term than salvation or gospel. And the Holy Spirit didn't use 
the term salvation or, or gospel here. He used a much broader term. And I'm going to just mention a few things to you to sort of suggest a few things, but there's actually 18 references that you could quickly come up with with things that, what's all the faith about? And you can get your own concordance and do that, but let's just look at a couple of places. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is one of these neat little passages with scary when you think about it. Paul says in the second letter of Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Ooh. Oh, boy. Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Gee, I thought so. Prove yourselves. Know ye not yourselves how Jesus Christ is in you unless you're discredited. And he goes on and, and talks about that. What about the, this faith? We are to examine ourselves to be sure we're in the faith. What do we know about the faith? First of all, it's a mystery. What faith really was was not revealed prior to the New Testament. What do I, what am I getting at? First Timothy 3.9. We just pop back quickly into 1 Timothy, chapter 3. In his, in his discussions of qualifications and so forth of the ministry, he says to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. The word mystery there is mysterion in the Greek. It means something was hidden up till now, but I'm now revealing. So there's something about faith that's not really obvious. It's not a glib, easy thing. Faith is more than belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your house. Great. I can believe that that chair will hold my weight. I don't have faith in it until I rely on it. Faith has to do with not just believing, but relying on that belief. We just read in 1 Timothy 4.1, since we're on this page, I'll call your attention to it again, just a little over. Uh, uh, now the Spirit ex speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Faith is something that is going to depart from the earth in the last days in some broad way. That's, what, that's why the epistle to Jude is such a last days issue. Apostasy is going to be not something that just happens the last days. It's going to characterize the last days. As long as 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. Faith involves duty to others. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, which is worse than an infidel. Hey guys, did you know that you had an obligation to provide for your families? You sort of knew that. I mean, you read the book of Proverbs and your wife reminds you of that. Did you? But 1 Timothy 5.8 is kind of heavy. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. That's kind of heavy. Remember that, girls, when your husband's worried about trying to find, put bread on the table. It's not, that's not materialism. It's his compliance with 1 Timothy 5.8. It's an act of faith. What's it? He needs to provide for his own. That's an injunction from God himself. It shows up lots of places, but this is perhaps the heavy one. Because if you don't do it, you're worse than an infidel. Faithful teaching establishes the church in faith. We know that from Acts 16.5, and uh, all believers are instructed to stand fast and continue in faith. 1 Corinthians 16.13, Acts 14.22. I don't think we need to take the time to chase those down. Those are pretty self-evident in instructions in the, in the epistles. Okay. A couple of other things, though, about this issue of apostasy. Any claim of additional revelation outside the Bible is uh, evidence of apostasy 
What's my authority? Deuteronomy 4, 2, and Revelation 22, 18. Just to give you a couple. Let's turn to the Torah. I like this because we, 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 we're familiar with this in Revelation. We'll look at that in a minute. Those are the, the bracketing ones. There's dozens of verses like this, but I'll take the earlier one and the last one. Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Chapter 4, verse 2. God says, Ye shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish anything from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. That's typical of many, many passages in Scripture. It occurs, obviously, in the Torah, as I've mentioned just here. And let's go to the end, other end of the book, chapter 20, Revelation chapter 22. Now, verse 18 of 22 speaks specifically of the book of Revelation. But I don't think it's, uh, I think it'd be pretty argumentative to try to argue that it doesn't apply to the Bible as a whole. Let's read verse 18 of chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of his prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You want to add anything or subtract anything? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Now, what that really says is that somebody that tries to add to the truths of God or subtract from them has got a heavy problem. But uh, in the generic that we're dealing with, we're talking about apostasy. Now, all this gives rise to an issue that, for lack of a better word, I'll call combat faith. Hal Lindsey just published a book called Combat Faith, which deals with this issue too. But the whole idea is that your faith is not just a passive, private, invisible thing that you, that's neat around the dining room table when you have a family night with your family. Faith isn't just something in the quiet hours of the morning when you read your allotted three chapters a day or whatever program you've set for yourself. Faith is a combatant thing. And your passage for that is Ephesians 6. You know, it's interesting. In our home, we have kind of a large entrance and a library, and right between it, the styling lends itself to a suit of armor. And because of the house, we some time ago acquired a suit of armor, and it stands there by the door. And people come to our house, and what's that thing, you know? And Well, that's Ephesians 6. And, they, and, and if they're a Christian, they know right away what we mean. If they're not, we give us an excuse to go in and say, you know, put on the whole armor of God and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and so, so forth. So Ephesians says, uh, in the interest of time, I won't get into the details, but those of you that are familiar with it, it'd be well to review Ephesians 6, that you put on the whole armor of God. And that's both defensive and offensive. That's so that you can withstand a combat that is destined for you, and at the same time you can be an active warrior for the faith. And uh, so um, that's not bad. We got through three verses and to set a record. We'll, we got one more. We'll go through verse four. I think we can make it. And that way we won't be lagging around here for, okay. Now the question I'm going to ask then, getting back to Jude, verse four, is why did Jude have to write the book? We know to whom it's written. We know the Holy Spirit diverted his original purpose to another purpose, what is that purpose? Why is this necessary? Because of verse 4. There are tares among the wheat. That's what verse 4 says. Verse 4, For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord, 
Jesus Christ. Three marks of an apostate that we'll get into. But the first thing, this is the reason, it's because of verse 4 that the letter had to be written. It's because of verse 4 that the Holy Spirit admonishes us, exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because there's subversives in our midst. Now, you all know the story of the tares and the wheat. If you don't, you can review, refresh your memory in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. We won't take the time tonight. In the parable, in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, we have the same symbols used in several of the parables. A sower goes to sow, to sow seed. What is a seed? The Word of God. In one of those parables, the second parable, at night when no one is around, an enemy came and sowed tares, or weeds, if you will, among the thing. So when they, started to, when they sprouted up, they found out not only the good wheat, but there's also weeds, and what do you do? You let them grow until the time of the end. Then they'll be separated. That's the gist of it. Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. So that's the reason, is that there are false brethren that have stolen into the church. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. There are many, many passages. You just pick a few here. But Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul writing to Galatians says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we give place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And he goes on. Okay, now as saints, are you in parallel? Apparently, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is here talking about perils. And then he lists a bunch of these for a purpose in his argument here, which I won't get into right now, but he just says, In journeyings often, verse 26, In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea. You know Paul's life, he was accident prone. You know? I'm saying that facetiously, of course, but he was indeed a man that was buffeted by many things. But you know, it's the last one he lists here, in perils among false brethren. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. His Word.